Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Some people call it a conjure woman. It was said she cast a bad spell. Others said she was a witch. She chunk in a deep, dark well. All along the river, you could hear her soulful howl. If only I had the tongue of a hoot Is there any mainstream representation of spirituality as racialized or vilified than that of the conjure woman? Surely not. In the history of the US, black conjurers, and especially conjure women, have been labeled as female tricksters, deceptive, transgressive, chaotic, vengeful, and abiding by no codes except their own. I want them dead. With a voodoo priestess called Mama Matrace. I know what you can do, the power you possess. How strong is your hate? All the way up to the present day, white society has been conditioned to think of conjure as risky or even evil, messing with something that shouldn't be messed with. The implicit message seeming to be, even in the spiritual realm, know your place. As is always the case, what's misunderstood is threatening. And what's threatening is both demonized and discredited. The key you gave me for the house, there's a door in the attic, it doesn't open. That was their room. They were trying to conjure hoodoo. You know what hoodoo is? It's magic. Leave it alone. I'm Jericho Mandiba, and this is Beyond Belief. Naturally, these historical representations could not be further from the truth. In fact, informed by white supremacy and colonialism, they're designed deliberately to obscure and deny the reality of conjure. As a diasporic folk spirituality as crucial to the resistance of black slaves back then, as it is to the lives of proud practitioners today. So what is conjure? Scholar Camila Martin says, a conjurer includes, but is not limited to, root workers, fortune tellers, midwives, herbalists, hoodoo doctors, voodoo queens, spiritual mediums, persons born with a call or second sight, and others who are gifted with verbal or visual communication with the spirit world. The term conjure woman then works as an umbrella term for all these various forms of healing and spiritual practices with expressly African derivations. Southern conjure in particular blends African, Native American and European spiritual systems. Simply put, it's folk magic, originally used for protection, for luck, and of course, to find strength and harness resourcefulness through hardship. 
1899, black writer Charles Chestnut's The Conjure Woman became one of the first pieces of literature to reflect Conjure by name, with the title character, Aunt Peggy, perhaps being the first depiction of a Conjure Woman that somewhat challenged the depictions before it. And while black female writers like Zora Neale Hurston renegotiated the way Conjure was viewed in the wider public around the 1930s, it wasn't until the 70s that the archetypal Conjure woman found and fully owned her own voice. Not as an exoticized figure of chaos, but as an agent of mobility, of resistance and self-determination. It was at this time that women of the African diaspora began to reclaim the spiritual expressions and traditions of their ancestors. As Emily Zobel Marshall puts it, the conjure woman is a powerful presence who refuses to be forgotten. Part trauma, part joy, part past, part present, and more importantly, a combination of a future, an identity of soul authorship etched on every part of her humanity. Today, the reclaimed representation of Conja is used to resist the subjugation and marginalization of black women. But what of the people who practice Conja today? What of their lives, their beliefs, and their stories? How do they sit comfortably next to, or else bump up against, these fictionalized versions of their beliefs? I spoke to someone with both the academic background and the personal lineage and passion to answer these questions. Dr. Kenitra Brooks is an acclaimed scholar of black feminist theory and horror films. She's the Audrey and John Leslie Endowed Chair of Literary Studies at Michigan State University, and she's a former Harvard Research Fellow. She's the author of Sycorax's Daughters and Searching for Sycorax, Black Women's Hauntings in Contemporary Horror, and her work centers on demonstrating and articulating how black women use genre fictions to recreate their own realities and define their place of spiritual power and reclamation. In our chat, Kenitra also shares her personal connections to black women's spiritual practices and the philosophies that ground them, as influenced by her great-grandmother, who, like a million women before and after her, was a carer and healer in her community. Kenitra Brooks, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. It's really great to be speaking to you today. So a big, big question to start with. Can you just summarize, like, what is the archetype of the conjure woman and where does it come from? So the conjure woman is a, it's an idea that's been around for a long time. I think sort of the European or Western equivalent has long been the old witch woman that lives in the woods. And she was kind of like a penny dreadful right? And a cut wife who lived in yeah. the woods, right? And it was usually a woman who was a healer, a woman who was a midwife. She would also terminate pregnancies, all of these things. And she would use a lot of herbs and medicine to do it. So there is Black or African-American, Afro-Caribbean, particularly Black Southern, equivalent or idea of the conjure woman that comes from and is grounded in West and Central African religious practices and spiritual practices. So there's a spiritual element to the idea of the root work and the conjure. The mm -hmm. root work is for healing, but it's also for spiritual fulfillment taking place in ceremonies and these sorts of things. The conjure woman really came to fore with Charles Chestnut's work in the latter part of the 19th century. And he was an African-American writer and he did a bunch of short stories called Conjure Woman 
and other stories. And from that, the sort of concept of conjure really grew in popularity and became solidified, even though the ideas and the traditional practice of it came from West Africans who came over and who were enslaved here in the Americas. Mm -hmm. And was the Charles Chestnut representation of the conjure woman the first one that felt more nuanced or more true to life or less demonized? Is, no, is not at all. Of, that's the turning point? Oh, that no, was, not at all. It's, it's really sort of the naming of it and the popularity of it, right? So conjure had long existed in the southern United States. It was referred to as conjure or hoodoo. And what we must consider and understand about conjure and what has long been a misunderstanding of it is that it is dealing with religions instead of a spiritual practice. Conjure is not a religion. Mm -hmm. There are no gods, there are no laws or these sorts of things. And so a lot of times conjure has been demonized and conflated along with other traditional African religious practices such as voodoo or santaria or obeya and other things like that. And and wrongly so. All of it has been a, a wrong conviction. And so a lot of folks who were Christian or who may have practiced Islam or these sorts of things, they practiced conjure as well. It was a healing practice. It was a spiritual practice. And it came from a lot of the spiritual traditions of West Africa. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That's a really important point. Could you, if you're willing to, like, could you share a little bit about it as more of like a, a lived generational experience just as an antidote to that? Yes. Yeah, so I talk about this and my ideas that I'm, I'm working on and feeling out this idea of conjure feminism. And so allowing for and renegotiating who is referred to as a philosopher, who gets to build the worlds that we occupy. And I come from a long generation of uh, healers. And I am looking at and sort of rediscovering and replacing the healing work that my great-grandmother Myrtle Anderson did. And of noticing that she was referred to as a, a conjure woman. She was a conjure woman. I don't know if she self-identified as a conjure woman. But she was a healer in uh, the Third Ward of New Orleans. She helped heal people in my family. She actually saved my life. I used to have fevers as a baby. And she had my parents drop me oh. off by her. And she and she kept me for a few days. Also, my dad would have to go pick her up because she didn't drive or anything. Bring her to the house when I was a newborn and she would bathe me. She would give me these baths in the morning, every morning until I got better. So she saved my life through her healing practices. And I'm here today, literally and figuratively because of her. So what I'm saying is I think conjure is associated with a lot of women's knowledge and particularly black women's knowledge practices that are often easily dismissed, that a lot of times are hidden. And because you have to remember how demonized this practice was, a lot of these women who were in the church, um, my family was one of the founding families of our church. It was more secretive because it was sometimes looked down upon. So it was mm -hmm. a hidden practice, yeah. right? And I talk about it becoming something more of that's passed down in the kitchens and in the gardens, black women's homes, rather than in a formalized practice of a school or even a semi-formalized practice of a church, right? Where you have Sunday school, where you have the preaching tradition, all of these things, there's Bible study. 
But this is something that is a praxis as well. It's a practice. So you have to be there. This isn't something you can really learn from a book. There's an apprenticeship that has to occur. And that happens in the relationships and the generations of the women. This allowed you an economic freedom uh, as a person on the margins, either a woman or a man who uh, may be queer, allowed you that ability to have the economic freedom where if you were excised from the community, if you were looked down upon, you could still eat and feed your family. Yeah, yeah. And I guess part of the reason that it was so demonized is because it was inherently feminine, right? The idea of of a woman who is transgressing like white male power structures and has their own power and their own healing, like what could be more threatening than that? Well, it's multiple ways, because remember, this is both black and woman in its practice. In regards to the sort of black-white binary, which is false in its distinction, but to ease the conversation about it, it is a knowledge practice gleaned from West and Central Africa. And it was thought of as dangerous because in order to fully enslave Africans, you had to convince them that they had no culture and that they had no past. This was clear evidence that these peoples had past, that they had cultures, and that mm. they had knowledge practices. With the Haitian Revolution and with other revolutions, and particularly with the Haitian Revolution, the practice of voodoo was integral to it. It was a way in which Hugans or the priests of the religion were able to travel through their spiritual practice and bring together and pass by information to the different plantations and create coordination and things like that. And they mm. used their spiritual practice to push back against enslavement. This literally scared the shit out of enslavers. So there was a crackdown. There was a crackdown, particularly on any sort of spiritual practice that came and generated from Africa. Because if these Negroes get ideas from their spiritual practices, if they get together and recognize the power that they could have, they will throw us all over. Conjure became something that was thought of as evil. Conjure became mm-hmm. something, it became conflated with Santeria and Voodoo and all other traditional practices. So it looked like it was all devil worship. There aren't these very intricate nuances between all of these different practices, right? Um, it was just all looked at as black and bad. And I even, um, this past Tuesday, no, it was last week, I did a, a lecture with my students in my Afrofuturism class. And I talked to them because I had them reading about Orisha, I had them reading about Loas and Conjure and whatever. And I was getting back from my grad students, my teaching assistants, and they were like, they're a little weirded out by this. You know, they're uncomfortable <laughs> and, you know, particularly mm. the Christian students or whatever. And I did a lecture and I said, listen, I put up like Buddha. I was like, who has a Buddha in their home? Okay. I said, okay, here's Zeus, here's Thor, here's Shango. They're all gods of thunder. And I was Mm -hmm. like, you literally pay money to go see Thor. You, in the eighth grade, you learn all about Greek and Roman mythology. So what is the difference here? It is based in Mm -hmm. your anti-blackness. And this was for all of my students, no matter where they lay on the um, race spectrum. You are taught that these things are bad because they were Mm -hmm. associated with the culture of enslaved Africans. Mm -hmm. 
So you are taught to be mm. afraid of this out of the cultural anti-blackness because this was something that gave people power. This is something that gave people a mythology. And when people have a mythology, as Ibi Zaboy likes to talk about, they're able to make themselves. And the last thing you want is an enslaved person to be able to think and make and become themselves, to write themselves into being, to speak themselves into being. This is power. And it was a power that was dangerous to the power structures, the Western hierarchies that existed then and that exists now. So even though now we are in a supposedly contemporary and more more progressive time, it is still something that people are deathly afraid of. I've done I've done presentations on this. People have left the room. People, this one guy like stood wow. in the doorway and he like peeked in and he's like, my mom told me this stuff was bad. But even as we move on from the problematic black-white dichotomy of this, we also must talk about the gendered aspect of it. And you must look at how this functioned within the black church dynamic. And what you had, particularly mm. in post-emancipatory black folks, as we got into ideas of respectability, as we got into ideas of let's prove to white folks that we are human, it's an idea of humanizing yourself, that we are properly Christian, that we are properly educated. Because of this, ways associated with enslavement, such as conjure and hoodoo and all of these other things, hoodoo, not voodoo, became seen, they were seen as backwards. They were seen as things in which we needed to eschew and shed and get away from to show how progressive and learned and contemporary we were as Negroes. And this is a loss. And, and I understood mm. why folks made this decision, right? And, and so this has to be something that's handled very carefully because it's like I understood you were trying to survive. So I look at what I do as a recovery project. And it's a recovery project because then you had this highly feminized place of power competing with the highly masculine power structure of the black church. And remember, the black church was the one place that a black man could go and get something akin to the power structure and being on top of the hierarchy that white men could. So mm. then if you had these conjure women, if you had these hoodoo practitioners and root workers and all of these things competing spiritually with you, it was easier to say that's bad. That's with slavery. Those women are evil. Don't listen to them because they were a threat. And that it's so interesting because the, the threatening nature of it then and now is just a huge testament to how inherently political and necessary it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is. And, you know, and I'm glad you used the term political. This is a political spiritual praxis, political praxis. This is an intellectual praxis. It covers so much ground because it shows and reflects the complexities in which Southern Black women occupied. And what I'm saying is mm -hmm. that these Black Southern women were onto a lot and they were underestimated and people wrote them off. And I'm saying, let's go back. Let's see how these women operated as philosophers, as political operatives, as cultural bearers, as, you know, spiritual leaders, as all of these things. And also, let's mourn the potentiality of what could have been if we'd have paid attention to these women. 
We'll be back with Dr. Kenitra Brooks in just a sec. But right now, I'd like to just pause and acknowledge A, how amazing and incredible my guest is, and B, how a subject like this can be as confronting as it is fascinating. No matter who we are or where we sit on the racial spectrum, we've all internalized the stigma that surrounds Konja as a spiritual practice. And that's why it's so important that we have informative and interesting conversations like this one, where we can call it what it is. It's anti-blackness and it's white supremacy at work. Pretty simple. And you already knew that. But given so many of us still hold a vague discomfort around this subject, it clearly bears repeating and repeating. But what to do? Well, up next, Kenitra is going to talk about exploring your own ancestral lineage of spiritual traditions and why we all should. Plus, why Beyonce is an inspirational model of biomethography, that is, writing oneself into being. And so talking about where we are now, I think it's fair to say just, you know, from what I've observed on social media, that there is this another kind of like third or maybe second, you know, wave, like a renaissance of practice among young women and femmes. And there's like a reclamation that's happening. So what's making this necessary right now today? I talk about it particularly in terms of, you know, my specialty is dealing with uh, black women. And I talk about it in terms of you're able to now explore many of these things because black women have a certain economic freedom and prosperity that they didn't always have. Also, a lot of black women of, of the professional black woman class, they also have the time. They're able to have their own places, right? You can get away with doing a lot more in your own apartment than you could in your mother's house. You could have the root working and things like that, that, you know, your mom was often taught was bad or evil or these sorts of things. And you're like, you know what? I want to reevaluate and come back to these practices. I do think a critique of that that can exist, though, is... The writer Erna Broadbur, who's a, she's a Jamaican writer, and she's looking at our generation and how we're reclaiming some of these practices. But she says a lot of the folks who are leading this conversation tend to be uh, more middle and upper class. Right. We're not hearing as much mm-hmm. from uh, working class black women, I think, because they are not as economically free. They're not as able Mm -hmm. to talk about these things. They're not as able to more openly practice these things because they don't have that flexibility. Mm. Yes. Also, with that lens of class placed on it, is there a risk of commodification, appropriation? I think definitely so. Like uh, (laughs) in one of the Facebook groups, they had a TJ Maxx and it was like a cleansing kit with like sage and like herbs in it and we were like what the heck is this right and particularly Mm. because for some of these practices you have to be very careful about the origination of things and you know who's touched this where does this come from the source and all of this stuff and people were like I'm not touching that stuff it's from like TJ Maxx like we don't know where this came from (laughs) but when you speak the energy is going to be all kinds of messed up yeah and when you speak of the idea of the commodification of it I think that's very very true I also think that a lot of times it's really blown up 
the amount of people that are hucksters or charlatans within some of these practices. And what, what I always say is you have to go with your gut, go with what feels right for you. But also there are charlatans in every single spiritual and religious practice. Totally. And it's that kind of nuance, I guess, that is important for us to talk about now, because yes, you know, there's this demonized kind of stereotype of like a trickster conjure woman but then it's also like not everyone's going to be a hereditary healer and perfectly moral as well like they're just they're human beings <laughs> everyone's different yeah and I, I and I like this idea of the conjure woman as trickster I, I just think that you know there's mm. an agency there that is scary for a lot of folks and I say, listen, I'm not like some uh, voodoo priestess telling you to go do this or whatever. What I want you to do is ask the question, who does it behoove for you to be afraid of your own people? Who does it behoove <laughs> for you to be afraid of the mythologies and the ideas and the folk stories and all of these things? Who is empowered when you're scared of your own stuff? And I said, do you think it's you? No. So who's empowered? You're being removed from a power source. Doesn't mean you have to leave everything you know. I just want you to question, why is this power source so demonized? And if something is so demonized for so long, it just causes me to ask questions. And like on the flip side of that question, what about asking the question, do we stand to gain from reclaiming this ultimate figure of resistance who is a shapeshifter and agile and working on like another level? Like she's not even playing the same game as her oppressors. Not even and playing what the would same it... game and not working in the same reality. And that's that's what mm. I think is interesting, right? And that's why I to refer to these women as philosophers. They are building and operating within their own world cosmological structures. They are rebuilding their worlds. And these are worlds that exist without, uh, outside of the Western hegemony. And I talk to many of my students and I talk to them across race spectrums. And I'm like, listen, I came from Texas and San Antonio. That was where the previous university I was. And I would talk to my Chicana students and I was like, how do you connect back to Kurandismo? How do you connect back to those indigenous practices that gave your people power throughout these hundreds of years in which you were subjugated, right? Even to my students who are white, I'm like, okay, if you're Irish, what were those things that you gave up, that your people gave up to be considered white in the United States? I say, you have your own spiritual practices. You have these long traditions of what you guys would do. The same thing with my Eastern European students. Some of you guys were Roma. In the Polish, there were many Polish traditions, all of these things. And I'm saying, in order to be considered white in the U.S., your ancestors, they changed their names, but they also purposely left a lot of their own power sources behind. It is up to you yes. to go back and recover those things. You have your own ancestors. You have your own traditions. What are those things? And find them and reconnect your own generational traditions that are there. And this is an idea that can really bring us together in the ways that are necessary, that acknowledge our differences, that respect our 
differences. But because we're all finding peace in our own different cultural traditions and respecting them, I think that calls for a renegotiation of what cultural diversity really looks like. And even just on a personal level, like what would the world look like if everybody had access to these kind of initiatory rights? Our identities would be totally different. Yeah, it really is. And because I I sometimes bristle at this idea of so many folks participating in traditional African religious practices and all of these things, it becomes this sort of idea of eating the other or exotification of, yeah. ooh, you've got these exotic practices. I'm like, they're not that damn exotic from like Druid practices or like, you know, Roman practices <laughs> or all these things. I'm like, y'all were doing hot shit too. Like you should plug into that and don't see what uh, what we're doing as so incredibly different. Indigenous practices have these threads running through them that are, are and always have been there, right? Even in Scandinavia and the Viking practices and all these things, they were there. You know, uncover mm-hmm. them and uncover the truths of them, not what we get through Thor, <laughs> you know, uncover mm-hmm. the truths of them. And it can be a really powerful thing that provides you with a great foundation. Absolutely. And it really is probably like the most foundational level, a way to truly, you know, as a white person, for example, deal with white supremacy. Like if you can actually go back and understand yourself in a way that means that you're not just reactive from this place of like, quote unquote, logic or science or whatever. Yeah. And you no longer become Um, white. Right. And we have to deal mm -hmm. with this idea of and a lot of the recovery project that different black folks are doing within their traditions is moving away like I'm no longer just black. I'm Yoruba, I'm Fulani, I'm all of these things and I have these specific traditions. So you're no longer just white, right? You are from the Gauls, right? You're descended from the Gauls and French and these sorts of folks, right? You are Polish, you are Roma, you are all of these things that doesn't just conflate you together into these oppressive and oppressed power Mm -hmm. structures. I think that simplification Mm -hmm. is dangerous, because when you lack yes, the complexity, you get, to, you get to make these broad stereotypes about each other. When realizing, yeah, you, get, you get to be neutral. <laughs> yeah, right? And I, and I also talk to a lot of my white students. I'm like, you know, there's the idea that, you know, black folks don't know themselves because of enslavement or whatever. But I'm like, y'all don't know y'all selves either. There are many self-discovery, <laughs> you know, roads to discovery that you have to do. And there's work that you have to do as different peoples to discover that and make those connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is like such an important conversation to be having right now as, you know, we're in this kind of appropriative age and the more that people are reclaiming conjure traditions, the more that other people are like, well, yeah, I don't have that, I want that and blah, blah, blah. And so there is this kind of like um, need to really like use the moment that we're in really wisely to do that work. And that that kind of makes me think of like, so I want to talk about Beyonce for sure. But I also kind of feel like, you know, I I was reading about the term biomythography, which I think is like a Camila Martin term. And I want to talk to you about like what Beyonce is doing as an artist and as a biomythographer when she kind of, you know, seemingly intentionally portrays these aspects of herself as a modern conjure woman. 
And I think, you know, you have to understand that mythology comes from an, an idea. The idea of biomethographer is writing yourself into being, um, mm. creating yourself the power of self-creation. And Ibi Zaboy has this awesome essay that I start my classes off with, and it's called Give Us Back Our F***ing Gods. And she talks about this idea of her being a Haitian American and how Haitians believe that they are descended from the snake god Dumbala, from the Dahomey people, the Fon people. And Dumbala had sex with the rainbow. And together, Dumbala Wedo is their origin myth. Dambala Wedo is the snake god and his wife together. And they got together and their children are the Haitian people. And she talked about the power of knowing where you came from. And I think that that's what Camilla is, is talking about and referring to. That's how we're, we're both reading Beyonce because we did the Beyonce reader together. And it's this idea and the power and the reclamation of writing yourself into being and connecting and connecting with who you are genealogically, both biologically, but also spiritually and intellectually. So there are parts of Lemonade which she is walking up that hill and there are pictures mm. of her ancestors framed as she's walking up the hill on the on the ground. Right. From the very mm -hmm. beginning there are these black women dressed in all white and in old fashioned clothes that are looking down on everything that is going on. And she's saying, these are my ancestors. They are looking down upon me and they're helping me do the work to get to know myself that I could possibly get to a point of healing my family. I think it is, is necessary and powerful that after Beyonce, and I say the Beyonce character, after the anger of betrayal, she sort of reverts back into herself. Camila and I speak about them creating a maroon community, a maroon community of women and uh, women ancestors, both living and dead. So those women are in older dress clothes because I don't think they are on this living plane. I think they are her ancestors that are helping her to heal and come together. And I say the maroon colony because it's in the swamp. And you have to remember uh -huh. a lot of enslaved folks who were in the deep South, particularly Louisiana, her folks are from Western Louisiana who moved to Houston. In the Deep South, you could not run to Ohio. You couldn't really get north. So what a lot of folks did was they ran to the deep parts of the swamp and they created what are referred to as maroon communities, communities of black folks who had run away. And a lot of times mm. they would work with uh, some of the local indigenous populations and they would learn to mm. live off the land. And they were in parts of the swamp where white folks were scared to be because that's where they found their freedom. So they're living in the midst of enslavement, and yet they are an island of liberation in the middle of the swamp. But I think that she is really sort of taking that on and saying, sometimes you need to go back and maroon yourself and commune and heal with other women. 
Yeah. Wow. So, okay. You, you basically, you coined the term conjure feminism, right? Along so with, along like with Camila, this... <laughs> along, along with, with Camila, Camila yes. and Lakeisha Simmons. Yeah. We're working on it. Yeah. Yeah. We did the conjure feminism thing and it came from our Beyonce studies, right? We said we, we mm. did the pop culture and, and all of that. And we wanted to do a more scholarly form of it because we're really trying to work on multiple levels, work on where everyday yeah. folks can understand some of these ideas, but also working on the levels and saying we could speak high theory if you want to. But we want to make sure that we're having conversations that include a lot of folks because this sort of knowledge yeah. shouldn't be kept into the ivy tower that's not why i'm here you know you we get so proud that we get published and we send it and i sent my mom my first article and you know i was working on like zombies and all this stuff and my mom was like is this zombies what the hell is this right and she's like <laughs> what is this and i was like oh, okay i'll take that let me go work on something that you can that you would like <laughs> that's so funny that's so funny well next time i talk to you we can have a, a zombie conversation as well that, that would be works. very fun <laughs> this has been amazing thank you so much for sharing everything and yeah thank you so much for coming on the show thank you so much for having me jericho this has been a pleasure Phew, isn't it incredible that I just learned more about black healing and spiritual traditions in about half an hour than I was ever taught in both decades of schooling and in popular culture? Maybe you feel the same way, and that says a lot. It feels like even today, West and Central African spiritual traditions and practices are just only being understood by those who aren't their immediate knowledge keepers and inheritors in the West. And it'll take much more unpacking spiritual white supremacy before they're able to be fully lauded and celebrated for the rich history, profound wisdom, and uplifting gifts that they actually offer. If you enjoyed this episode of Beyond Belief, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a thing. It also really helps, and I appreciate it to no end. Stay tuned next week because things are going to get a little spiritual and a lot fishy. Beyond Belief is a Wonder Media Network production recorded on Tongva land and edited and produced by Liz Smith with support from Edie Allard. Wonder Media Network is a women-led podcasting company dedicated to lifting up underrepresented voices based in New York City. of women leave the traditional workforce when they have children. Claudia Reuter, a former stay-at-home mom who went on to become a venture-backed CEO, is the host of The 43%, a podcast from Wonder Media Network that talks to women about their journeys towards living creative lives that include both family and career. Now, more than ever, the identities we've built for ourselves, for work and for parenthood are suddenly blurring. Some of the women that Claudia speaks with this season have always lived in this middle ground. Some are navigating the space for the first time, but each of them will help us work through what's become an increasingly urgent question. How do we bring our whole selves to work? Listen and subscribe to The 43% wherever you get your podcasts.